Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. I've decided to close out the season by talking with one of the smartest people I know, and easily my favorite limnologist, Dr. Ann Shortell. When I met Ann, she was just hired as the director of the Office of Water Policy at the Department of Environmental Protection, and she would go on to be one of only three people ever to serve as executive director of two different water management districts. She's currently the co-owner of Geo 2030 Consulting out of Gainesville, and even though we're talking by phone, I couldn't be more happy to have her on the show. So let's get on with it. And thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here, and uh, thanks for noting that I actually can't keep a job. <laughs> Oh boy, we'll get, we'll get we'll get to some of that. Trust me, trust me. First of all, where are you at the moment? Dallas, Texas. And why are you in Dallas, Texas? Well, I have a daughter and son-in-law and twin granddaughters here, and we are currently in the final days of Baby Watch for number <laughs> three. Wow, wow, that's awesome. And we'll get to a little bit more of that pretty soon. But I want to start with when you were born. And you were born in, let me see if I pronounce this correctly, Saul St. Marie. Is that right? Sue St. Marie. There you go. And that's in Michigan. Yes. But I don't think that tells us much about your beginnings because you're an Air Force brat. So your family's not actually from Michigan, right? Correct. And They're from uh, upstate New York. We're in upstate New York because the Ryan Matthews, who I spoke with last week, his family's from Tro- Troy, New York. Uh, not not too close to where my family is uh, has their roots. Jamestown, New York, is in the extreme western portion, close to to uh, Buffalo, really, about sixty miles from Buffalo. Wow, cold times. And and do you still have a lot of extended family up there? Um, we have, you know, there's cousins about, and you know, once removed type family. Uh, it's a generally a fairly small family. And most of my generation and the next generation have moved elsewhere. Okay. So do you consider yourself in any way a New Yorker or are you just, <laughs> hey, I'm an, I'm an Air Force brat and, you know, and so I'm from everywhere? Air Force brat and no, I do not consider myself a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you've been in Florida for a long time, so I hate to try to bash you over the head with that, but, but sometimes it is what it is. So where did your parents end up after the Air Force days were over? Well, my dad's last active duty station was Eglin Air Force Base out on the Panhandle. So he retired there and my my parents lived there until my mom passed and my dad actually moved to Gainesville where we, Kevin and I, were raising our family. Nice. So then tell me about young Ann. You end up as an accomplished academic. And I know for a fact that you're a huge sports fan, especially Notre Dame football. But were you bookish as a kid? Did you enjoy the outdoors and sports more or was it both? Well, I always enjoyed the outdoors and I enjoyed sports. But as a spectator, I'm not all that coordinated. (laughs) And I enjoyed academics, but I don't really consider myself bookish, although You know, I've read all the Nancy Drew mysteries from back in the day, so maybe I am. I think I started my scientific career when I was in grade school. Wow. 
Tell me about your your favorite parts of exploring nature and the outdoors as a kid, or was that was that something that you liked doing? Uh, absolutely. So when we lived in Oklahoma, I could walk to school, and you had to you know cross this little creek on the way to school. And in the in the spring, I would pester my mom for mason jars and come home every day fit with tadpoles. <laughs> Probably decimated the population in the in the crypt, but for sure, I then spent hours, countless hours and days trying to rear these guys into little frogs. I uh, admit to <laughs> having lost some, uh, but those, yeah, those were the beginnings. And by high school, you know, we were moving around all the time. And by high school, you know, the nationally, we had the National Environmental Policy Act. And I kind of felt like I was, you know, uh, an environmental sleuth. I mean, Hmm. as a a teenager, I probably am lucky not to have been arrested with my, you know, little brownie camera outside (laughs) of, you know, outside the gates of some, you know, 'er ne'er-do-well looking industries taking shots and, and speculating what was really going on there. Little did I know, right? Yeah, exactly. And so did just to, to pull on that thread a little bit, was there a, a place that, that you were looking at that you were sleuthing out to end up being a, a ne'er-do-well? Or or was it just an exercise of, of that curiosity that stayed with you? It, it, for me, it's mostly curiosity. Um, there was one place uh, in my high school days that looking back, I can see, well, I wasn't far off on that one. But... In, in general, you know, most industries are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to improve environmentally, whether it's air, whether it's water, all the different things. I mean, back in the day, folks were doing what was usual and customary, and we didn't understand all the consequences, you know, 50 years ago. So Yeah, no, that seems fair. And we have tons of examples of, of that you know, in Florida where you had the, I think mo- most specifically the, the federal government you know, thinking you're doing the right thing. And, and in the end, I th- I'm thinking of straightening the Kissimmee River, um, you know, all the way down to, to Lake Okeechobee and what a mess that yeah, made. And, absolutely. So where was your family when you graduated from high school? You mentioned high school. Uh, in Georgia, Robbins Air Force Base, Warner okay. Robbins, Georgia. Is that, oh gosh, was that Atlanta or Macon? It, it's just south of Macon. Okay. And so... You go on to study both biology and chemistry in college. And I was going to ask how you ended up at Mercer for that, but I think I know the answers because it was close by and it's a really good school. Is that right? Sort of. I mean, it, really, there's a little bit of an arrogance associated <laughs> with it. Uh, it. Turns out, you know, back in the day we were we were schooled, you know, you can be anything, you know, study hard. The world is your oyster. You can do whatever you want. And I was just arrogant enough to to assume that that meant I only needed to apply to the college that I wanted to go to, (laughs) go to the college of your choice. Well, I didn't get in. And by then it was so, it was so late. It was too late to, you know, kind of (laughs) go away to school. All, all of these other choices that I'd looked at and eliminated because of course I was going to the one school, but Mercer had, uh, and it is a good school by the way. Uh, but they had a reciprocal, any of the counties adjoining, they had, you know, kind of this 
admission policy, I, maybe they assumed you weren't going to live on campus. I did, but I mean, I basically ended up at Mercer because I had not gotten the college of my choice. You mentioned that three times now, the <laughs> not getting into the college of your choice. So what are you, you do not want to mention it or? I was trying to avoid mentioning William and Mary, but now I've said it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Also a lovely school, but known for chemistry and biology or, or, or were you want to study something else at William You know, when you're 16 years old, you're not necessarily making these choices <laughs> based on, <laughs> on how the programs look. Grad school, yes. You know, undergraduate, yeah. not so much. I just fell in love with it when I visited there and eliminated all my other choices. And that was not a good thing. Of course, I got my revenge, if you will, my admissions revenge when they, because I kept my uh, application active mm -hmm. and I got in <laughs> the first semester of my freshman year at Mercer and, you know, hmm. had a little party and burned the thing and stayed <laughs> at Mercer. <laughs> As one does when they're, when they're young. Um, yes. And so when did the plan to become as as our mutual friend John Steverson says when he refers to you as a lake doctor. So when did that materialize? Well, I had many wonderful teachers and professors along the way. And in my sophomore year at, at Mercer, one of my professors who, had, who was a, a University of Michigan graduate said, you know, Ann, you ought to look at going to their field station. University of Michigan's got this field station up at Douglas Lake. I think you'd like it. I think it broadened your horizons. Long story short, I applied. I went, took my first limnology class, and I realized at that time I've found the career when, in fact, I couldn't have articulated. I didn't even know what a limnologist was. For people out there who don't know, I said lake doctor, but it's a, it's slightly more complicated than that. I understand. Uh, what is a <laughs> limnologist for folks out there that don't, well, that don't know? Well, so cl classically, it's the physical, chemical, and biological science of lakes and reservoirs, surface waters. Mm. In practice, most lim limnologists, including myself, are happy if our feet are wet. Hmm. So we've branched out into rivers and, and streams and wetlands. You know, we mm -hmm. pretty much stop at the, at the estuary, you know, as things start to get salty, we're less in a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it's generally less about groundwater or it was classically much less about groundwater and that has changed radically over the last 50 years as we realize the interaction between the surface water and the groundwater. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's especially true here in Florida, obviously, and, and, and especially true in two places where you headed up. We'll talk about that pretty soon. But I want to stick with a for a second on your, your choices that you're making here, which are endlessly fascinating now. So you have this professor <laughs> you really like. And he says, you got to go to Michigan because that's where it's at. And you say, great. But what I'm actually going to do is go to the school that is the arch enemy of the University of Michigan. Um, I guess maybe second to Michigan State, which is Notre Dame. But there's a lot of kismet, luck, fate involved in that as well. 
I assume? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, as you already mentioned, I'm a big college football fan, so that helped too. Although, you know, Michigan would have been, would have been a good choice as well, but I did end up uh, doing my graduate studies at the university of Notre Dame. Yeah. And so you're at Notre Dame and that's how I know you more than anything else is that you are all Irish. And, <laughs> and so you went to Notre Dame and you meet a dashing young engineer there named Kevin Shortell. Where was Kevin from and what brought you together? So Kevin uh, has two degrees from Notre Dame. He went there as an undergraduate uh, and, and became an electrical engineer, a systems engineer, moved away, worked for a while, came back to graduate school. And that is indeed where we met. He, his family is from Connecticut. He had, from back in the day, our girls just found his acceptance letter to you know, Notre Dame. So he got into the college <laughs> of his choice, <laughs> unlike me. But it was a, it was a, you know, it was a match made in heaven. We dated and and got married after I finished my degree at Notre Dame. And so, did you end up in Florida right after that, or tell me? Because I look, I'll give you where I'm at in terms of my knowledge of Anne Shortell and Kevin Shortell history. Is I meet you in 2011. I know you went to Notre Dame. I have no idea what you did between those two periods. And that's a that's a fair fair number of years there. So what happened after you graduated and you both uh, got married and moved on? So he had already finished and had moved to the Boston area. And he, he was a little bit more of a homebody than me. Recall, I'm an Air Force brat. I'll mm-hmm. go anywhere, right? Right. And uh, he grew up in the same house in Connecticut, you know, for his entire childhood history, Boston, not far away. So I, I followed him there when we got married. That was a big career decision point, right? Mm-hmm. You know, do I do a postdoc? Da, 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 da. We, we made the decision, well, we're going to start out in Boston. And we loved Boston. We were all over New England having, you know, the time of our <laughs> lives as newlyweds. And, you know, life just intervenes in those, in those times. The housing market was skyrocketing. Mm. My mom got sick. I mean, you know, my dad and mom had retired to Florida. Our best friends up there at the time were Bill and Wendy Graham. Mm. Wendy Graham, was a, who's the University of Florida's head of the uh, Water Institute there yeah. now, Back in the day, they had they had come up, and she was at MIT for her doctorate, and Kevin and Bill, you know, worked at the same small firm, and so we were all wow. fast friends, and they were coming back to Florida, and we were looking at the housing and saying, <laughs> you know, we could do really well in Florida, yeah. and Kevin's like, Florida? Are you, you know, what? But the rest is history, as they say. We moved to Gainesville, and stayed there for the entire time we raised our family. And so, yeah, you mentioned raising family. You have two daughters. What are their names and when did the first come along? So Janet uh, was born in 89 and uh, Jennifer was born in 91. And so you go straight to, to Gainesville. Is Are you living in the, uh, or is the house that, that you have now, is that the same one that 
that you've lived in the entire time or have you moved around a little bit since you were there? No, we, we found that house and that's been our homestead the, all this time. Wow. That's very cool. So that's a, that's a Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, I I can, I can, uh, I can relate. That's for sure. Um, I'm the, the son of two Navy brats. Um, my mom, but I picked up from my mom, the, the desire not to move all the time. And so, yeah. So that's kind of stuck. My dad used to love, boy, he loved moving. But you're you're now in both in the private sector, right? And so tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about the work that you did uh, before you ended up in government service. You know, kind of for me, classic environmental consulting, developing clients, trying to help them be successful, mindful of choices that they need to make to develop their product or to deliver energy or whatever their particular challenges were uh, in a cost-effective way, but also in an environmentally responsible way. And that for me was, I, I had clients all over the country. And there were some fantastic folks that I met along the way and, and really with very, very few exceptions the folks that I was trying to do the right thing. So that was, that was successful. I had fun for a long time. Nice. And then you decide to give all that fun up and come into government at, at DEP, no less. How, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, how did you end up at DEP? I mean, when you got there, it was, you know, the, the, the trumpets and bugles, the calling and uh, everyone is very excited to get you in the building, myself included, how did that happen? Yeah, well, serendipity is a real thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Governor Scott was elected. His, uh, I was invited to be on his transition team. Uh, he was looking for a scientist. He got me. Now, what are the odds? <laughs> and my eyes were opened during that time period of, you know, the whole the workings of government and the policy aspects, mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, those doors kind of cracked open for me and I saw what some of the possibilities were. And I, I'm also, you already know this, easily bored. <laughs> so, you know, I started asking more questions about what it might be like to work in, in that administration uh, and, you know, DEP would be the obvious place to start. But as you know, I went there as as green as a turnip or something. Are they green? I guess the leaves are green. Right, exactly. For, for the, for, in terms of policy. And yeah. you and John Steverson, who was not the secretary yet, mm-hmm. but was legislative affairs director, schooled me up and taught me everything I know. I mean, basically, you know, just tried to keep me from running my mouth too much at inappropriate <laughs> times. <laughs> uh, we'll get we'll get to a little bit of that as well. But I, w- what I remember the most was your sticky note whiteboard. So you have a whiteboard that people normally use to write on, but you decided to put what had to have been a couple hundred sticky notes of different colors all over it because you're trying to work through some issues that the state's been, you know, struggling with for many years. The biggest of which is 
consumptive use permitting, so water quantity. You also were worried about water quality. It's like, but the big thing that you were sticking in was the consumptive use permitting process as well as the Central Florida Water Initiative. Do I have that right? Am I remembering correctly? You are remembering correctly. And the the useful sticky note, you know, model is you can, you, the thoughts that are all on these sticky notes can still just be moved, moved around. It was an, it in part was an organizational challenge. How do we, how do we crack this nut? And you're right. It had been avoided for many years. I mean, it's one thing for government to recognize an issue. It's quite another to actually wrangle the cats together and, and try and make progress to solve an issue. Right. So st- sticky notes were useful to me. And yes, a lot of people thought it was old school. And of course, that was also true. I guess that's the benefit of being, uh, as you say, green, is you bring something completely different to some of these questions. And maybe that's exactly what it took. I mean, well, it seems like that's exactly what it took because you had some pretty good successes there in terms of dealing with consumptive use consistency as well as the Central Florida Water Initiative, the CFWI. Do you do you feel like that that's what happened in the end? It se- that's, that's what it seemed like to me, but I want to get your take on, on that. Yeah, I, th- I think there were a lot of aha moments, both for myself, for our staff, but also for, you know, the the various stakeholder groups that we were dealing with Mm -hmm. because we were posing questions in a, you know, not that these were radically new questions, but I think folks just hadn't been facing them for a while Mm -hmm. or maybe ever. And sometimes fresh eyes can point out things that help the various entities that are impacted by rules and regulations and environmental advocates when you're trying to get them on the same page, fresh eyes and a fresh way of looking at things can sometimes be helpful. The one that sticks out to me is helping people understand that we didn't need to fight to the death over every consumptive use permit. Right. You know, that there's lots of perfectly appropriate, smaller consumptive use permits. People are doing the right thing. They're conserving the water that they can. The bulk of the volume of the water coming out of the ground is tied up in the a few big permits. And by a few, I would, I would pose it as 20% of the permits as opposed to looking at the other 80. Not that you don't. 80%, not that you don't look at those, mm-hmm. but you could, you your staff could spend literally all of their time on small permits, do a fabulous job and not move the needle on water supply. All right. And it just took some spreadsheet manipulation and a few bar charts <laughs> to start to show people that, you know, we need to focus is, is, is off. We're trying to we're trying to be perfect with every single permit that we touch, and we need to focus on a big picture. And yeah. we moved the needle when we started doing that. Yeah, I I agree. And 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 to the extent that that happened, you end up. I guess I'll accuse you of it because I think you left first <laughs> of, bre- of breaking up the band. 
<laughs> so you go to the Swanee River Water Management District. I go to end up going to, to the Northwest District. And it seemed like you took that exact same attitude, that approach to some of those challenges. And you're having significant ones. It's a, it's a small water management district, Swanee, with enormous challenges. And the major challenge there in the moment was water quality. Now, obviously, water quality is a big deal as well, um, especially with how many uh, springs there are in in the, the Swanee River District. But my memory of those days was you were always looking for a way to build better mousetraps, to work better with stakeholders, to find solutions to putting more water back into the aquifer than was there before without the giant battles. Am I remembering that correctly as well? Yes. Um, and, you know, there were some bloodied uh, encounters over that general issue. But yes, it, it's, we're not going to continue to make progress, you know, uh, over and over time if we're not continually looking for ways to build better mousetraps, do things more efficiently, look for dual benefits, not just water quantity, but, you know, maybe it's a resilience uh, piece now. Mm-hmm. And you add that in and water quality ever present in in the work that we're doing on some of these projects. But it was important to take the battle from, it's not my water, it's, you know, it's not your water, it's my water, and move it to how do we manage the resource that we have and help nature replenish each mm-hmm. year as the rains come and so forth so that there's enough for everybody? Because that's what the, the water laws of Florida intend. Uh, but in practice, it had gotten, you know, kind of swords drawn and, you know, people sure. in different interest groups, you know, battling back and forth in a non-productive manner. And I know that... The minimum flow and minimum level uh, laws and program can lend themselves to those kinds of fights, especially when things are getting scarcer in terms of, of water resources. But I think you really did a good job of trying to to work your way around that, and and that's what I that's what I took away from not just there, but also your your work at the St. John's River Water Management District as well. And so I want to just kind of segue in, into that and, and try to try to kind of get a, a sense of your overall philosophy and we're, and we're getting a, a taste of some of that, but you moved to the St. John's River Water Management District, which is bigger, more money, which usually means more problems. You've got a lot of moving parts, but in the end, I guess, let me ask you this first. Why did you take the St. John's River job? All of those things that you just uh, articulated were part of that calculus, but in, in reality, our leaders in Tallahassee understood that there were there were still issues not only between Swanee and St. John's but in the St. John's footprint uh, that that needed additional attention. And I was happy to go there because I think it's important in St. John's, especially in the northern half of that district, to have Swanee's perspective coming in. But yes, I'm sure you're aware I got a call from Secretary Steverson, as did a couple of uh, governing board chairs, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, I want to touch for just a minute on that issue, that the reason for you being there, the perspective you bring, 
going from Swanee to St. John's. Because I think there are two elephants in the room there, right? You have one, which is South Georgia, not just consumption, but also waste water uh, coming down. And the other elephant in the room is an enormous place called Jacksonville and the consumptive use by, you know, perfectly decent folks, but heavy use nonetheless um, in that JEA territory. Am I capturing that correctly? Yes, there are utilities there, JEA being the largest one, but every all the utilities were trying to do their job. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And we needed a regional solution. Uh, Secretary Vineyard at the time got that started very early on recognized that and got those two water management districts together with their swords in their sheaths, uh, (laughs) mostly. It was important to have water management leaders like myself that could articulate both sides geographically, if you will, of, of those issues. And because otherwise, you know, it's just human nature. You get pretty myopic St. John's was doing a great job on so many things. Yes. But the groundwater doesn't stop at the borders. So a lot of of conversations to be had to help even those highly professional scientists at both districts understand how it works together and that having two separate models that don't get the same answers at the borders is just not going to cut it. Yeah, and and is that part of – I wanted to ask – in the next, you know, few questions about your management style, but but let's pause there. Then you have perspectives coming from two different places. You have a big task at hand. You have, I'll probably screw this up. It's another initiative. Is it the North Florida Water Initiative? Uh, what is the? That's what is close. The... <laughs> North Florida Regional Water Supply Partnership. Okay, now I know why I couldn't remember. That's yeah. a lot of that's a lot of words. Okay. <laughs> Did that predate your your work over there? I'm trying to remember my timeline, but was that a function of Secretary Vineyard's yes. creation and, and your implementation? Yes. That- when I was at DEP, I mean that came on early because JEA had at the time, uh, right before I got there, had been successful in getting a, mo- a giant, large modification on their consumptive use permit. You know, the, the Swanee folks who were already very concerned about their water supply sort of lost it over that. And yes, wisely, Secretary Vineyard, who was from Jacksonville, was seeing the bigger picture there and got the chairs and the executive directors in a room and got that kicked off because, you know, it was just not a tenable position for the state to have water management districts at drawn swords at the borders. Right. He used to say, you got to have the right people on the bus. I think he felt like you were one of the most important pieces on the bus. And I think the reason may be because one of the things I like about you the most is that I've never had to wonder what you're thinking when I'm in a room with you. <laughs> it helped me when you were my boss at DEP, and it also helped when we were both district ED. So you're getting these these calls and meetings together and you know, to to know that you were going to be engaging honestly but also assertively in whatever the task was at hand, especially when it had overlap between between districts. And I think that's one of the things that, that Herschel saw in you as well. Do you think that's you think that's right, or am I just supposing? 
Uh, no, I think that's probably fair. I mean, I never really had a very good filter. Uh, but if you're trying to solve regional problems, the folks that are going to be partners in that effort, whether it's governmental partners or various stakeholder groups, there has to be a level of honest communication that people can share so that everyone understands, you know, the different points of view, and then you're always driving towards that common ground. But the mm -hmm. underpinning has to be based in how the water works, right? I mean, you can't yeah. come up with a solution that does isn't viable because it doesn't actually work. And Secretary Vineyard also had his saying of, we've got to get the water right. And he was absolutely right about that. And so would... You describe those traits uh, as part of your general management style as well, because we're talking about problem solving, but we're also talking about you heading up one large office in DEP and, and big issues, and then heading up two agencies altogether with enormous challenges. Is that a part of your management style, which is being honest and attacking, attacking problems with common sense solutions? How would you describe your management style? I mean, I think that's, you know, kind of it in a nutshell. Um, it doesn't always work well. It's, it's, it can be a rocky road at times. Folks <laughs> are not necessarily used to that level of, I don't know, just sharing, I'll say. Right. Yeah. But it's important. I mean, my, the way I was always trying to affect change was to get people in a room and we, we could say anything in that room. I mean, respectfully, but say mm. anything in that room, battle it out. It might take a while, but once the decisions are made, folks are theoretically on the same page and we know what our next plan into the future is to solve that problem. Sometimes that's difficult. You know, if problems are big enough, there's a reason why they haven't gotten solved because you've got to sort of step out on faith to get some things done. And sometimes government employees, that's, it's safer, if you will, to, you know, do good work, but not necessarily take that leap. Yeah. If you're not from that organization, it's easier to take that leap. Yeah, and I think it, you know, in the end, you give you're, you're uh, a scientist and then a private sector person by nature, and you give a decade of of that, which is assertive, common sense, drive forward, try to fix problems. That's what you're there for. That's what you're trying to do. And so you give ten years of that, but then you hang up your bureaucrat spurs. I'll call them. <laughs> and and then head back to the the private sector back to back to those roots so to speak tell me about that transition back to business owner and your newish work life balance with the grandkids in the equation now it, it was difficult uh Brett very difficult for me i had been managing as you as you pointed out mm -hmm. big things and scads of wonderful people and that change was more challenging for me than I thought it would be. Probably because, you know, I was just being Pollyanna. I hadn't really thought of, 
thought it all through. I don't regret the decision to retire from public service and to kind of split my time with being new Nana and also back in the private sector. But it was a big adjustment for me personally. You know, hey, it's it's all good. Decisions have new adventures and we we got through all of those new adventures. I needed to keep my hand in scientific innovation jar, I, I wasn't ready to let that go. And I, it was, I was surprised by how much I missed some of the things that I would have told you before I retired, I wouldn't have missed at all. <laughs> <laughs> what are the things that you do take on? What scratches that edge for you at the moment? Do you, are you very selective in, in terms of the work that you take on? Pretty selective. And part of that is I don't have, you know, I'm not a full-time consultant anymore. Right. So, and it's a, it's a gift at this stage of my career to be able to be selective. I told you when I was in the private sector before that the vast majority of my clients were trying to do the right thing, but not every one of them. And now I can tell the ones that I'm not that interested in working for because of whatever reason that I'm just too busy. And I'm probably being sincere. I am too busy, but yeah. I'm still focused on projects, still focused on clients who are willing to innovate it's not every client that wants to be first at anything. You know, they might want to be third if something is panning out, but they don't want to be first. Well, I'm mm -hmm. concentrating on the folks that are willing to step out with me and others who are trying to connect lots of dots that will benefit Florida water over time, along and along. So given that status and, and how you look at things now, I want you to look back on what you've done so far, is there a professional accomplishment that you're most proud of or something that's, you know, maybe, you know, some people have trouble picking out one thing. And so is there something that would kind of fit in your, your top three? I thought about that a lot, you know, and I keep returning to something because most of the accomplishments over that 10 year period were not mine. They mm -hmm. were, you know, just a, a cast of thousands working together and, you know, yeah. pulling in the same direction. And I would not want to point to any of those and say that was my best accomplishment. <laughs> but I do feel like I kept bringing up wherever I was, but particularly at the water management districts, the need for all of us to broaden our horizons, to encourage students, young, younger people to envision themselves as a water scientist, as a water mm -hmm. engineer, to, you know, it's that STEM pulse. Right. And even at Swanee, we started there with small grants for teachers to get some of these things into their schools. We also, during the summer, would bring bring groups out to springs and different places, not just to enjoy the springs, but to see how do we measure things about springs? How do we... Mm. How do we use maps? How do we, you know, all the different technology. That wasn't really happening there when I got there. And we then also took that and it, it morphed into a slightly different form. But we had a program like that at St. John's too. And that's not to say that there weren't 
fabulous teaching opportunities beforehand. But I felt like as a woman scientist, I could speak to diversity and, uh, you know, student encouragement in a way, in a voice that, that maybe they hadn't heard before. So I am, I don't know if proud is the right word, but I feel good about the progress that we made in that arena. What do you tell a young woman, uh, a girl, or a young man who's thinking about doing, whether it be public service or just the environmental sciences uh, as a whole? What do, you, what do you tell them? What kind of advice do you give them? Well, I think it's important for uh, any young person to really try and lay the table with a buffet, sample the buffet, and see what you you know, when do the light bulbs go on? Mm-hmm. And then you know where to sort of focus because, you know, a career is, is a fabulous thing if you love what you're doing. You're not really working. Right. But you have to you have to find that. And I didn't want, you know, whether it was women, young women, girls, you know, minority students that maybe hadn't been exposed to some of these things before that others are, I didn't want them to feel that there was anything out there that they couldn't put on that buffet. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want folks to be afraid of math or afraid of science. I mean, they some folks just assume they can't do it. And in some cases, not only can they do it, but they're brilliant at it. <laughs> you know, so you you try to foster that inquisitive nature that we have and see where it leads and then follow it. Is there anything about your government service that you feel was left undone or even underdone? Almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we're not finished. List them them all. (laughs) But I'll I'll throw one out there. This is, you know, the the sort of the classic Pollyanna Ann who thinks, oh, we can do this. When I got to St. John's, I made no secret of the fact that we had something that we could do that would really cross so many different groups in St. John's and lots of people would feel good about it. And that was reestablishing the riverine connection of the largest tributary to the St. John's River by taking out Rodman Dam, the dam itself. <laughs> Holy smokes. What a... <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. You stepped in it, didn't you? Now, you know, I, as I was preparing for retirement, I'm thinking, gosh, now we've got this dam assessment out there that, that I mean, dams have water control structures. All of them have to be refurbished. They have... Mm-hmm lifespans, you know, engineering 101, dam safety 101. You right. can't, you don't wait for the catastrophe. You've got to take action. And it's not mm. that reservoirs are bad. Hey, I like bass fishing in reservoirs, but there are lots of scientific reasons to keep wa- free-flowing water free-flowing. Reservoirs mm. can be offline, not midline. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of you know, lessons over the past 50, 75 years, uh, how to do this. And water control structures and dams are coming down all over the country for various reasons, Hmm. not the least of which are things like fish that need to go up and 
down and manatees and others. But it, I'm not the most patient person in the <laughs> on the planet. You probably remember that from back I, in the I day. I remember that, yes, yes. <laughs> and I was at St. John's for six years, and we didn't get the we didn't get it over the finish line. But there's a lot more genuine conversation now than there was, and we're we're still trying to help the stakeholders that have a different point of view to see the the regional water-related ecosystem benefit that would accrue from a, such a change. But yeah, that was, there were a lot of things undone. That certainly was one. <laughs> <laughs> now that's, a, that's a good one. That one may, may last a bit longer as well. Are you optimistic about the future of the environment and natural systems in Florida yes. and why? Yes. I mean, well, I'm an optimist. I have a professional career from its earliest days through today that show that nature can heal and people can help that process. We need more people to understand that it's important. We're not, we're not going to run out of water, but we're running out of that plentiful, clean fresh water uh, to support all of our various activities. So things mm. need to be innovative. And sometimes that might uh, be a little more economically challenging, but absolutely nature, nature finds a way. And I am an optimist. I do try to help people to understand that it's not, there isn't a switch that we can throw that our that's going to solve these challenges. It's it's an incremental day in and day out, mm. do better each day, each year, each decade uh, to begin to see the improvements. But there's, you know, gosh, there's examples all over the globe where like-minded people have brought aquatic ecosystems back from the brink. Mm -hmm. So on the other side of that coin, what, if anything, keeps you up at night? regarding Florida's environment? All of those things that aren't done. <laughs> <laughs> because my mind is still going to be looking for the next innovation, the mm. next policy change that would enable a particular innovation to be more useful. And who do I need to talk to next? Or, you know, who does the secretary need to talk to next to begin to move that issue down the road. I do sleep pretty well, though. Well, that's good. Finally, how can folks get in touch with you if they want to take a shot at getting some of your time at uh, Geo 2030? Well, my email address is I probably on LinkedIn, abshortel at gmail.com. Very simple. Um, or give me a call. That number hasn't changed in a long time. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. So um, I, lo I love hearing from folks. And I do get calls from m many of the, the wonderful people that I've interacted with, especially over the last decade, just to kind of talk through issues. And I love to do that, too. Awesome. And Shortel, thank you so much for coming on the show and being the season closer for us. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for both this episode and our very first season. I can't thank you enough for listening to Water for Fighting. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. And please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Oh, and don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. 
You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at FLWaterPod, and you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thank you to Carl Soren for making the best of what he had to work with, and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Please join me back here in about three or four weeks for the start of Season 2 of Water for Fighting. We'll have more phenomenal guests, including a few curveballs along the way. Till then, keep your whiskey close and your water close. Water for Fighting.